This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, as we continue our series called Alien. The Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians who were increasingly being marginalized, alienated in society. Um, Nero, in 64 AD, after 70% of the city of Rome had been burned to the ground, set up as the culprits this religious sect known as Christians. And he did so not because they were popular and he needed to bring them down a few notches. He did so because they were already a despised group of people. And so the question to us is, how had they become so despised and how had they navigated that, those waters. Two years before the fire, Peter writes to a group of Christians scattered about the Roman Empire in modern-day Turkey to, to offer them kind of a manual, a guidebook for Christian exilic living. And so we're looking at this book. We're going to study this book. We're going to mine this book for wisdom as we seek to live faithful lives to Jesus Christ as exiles, strangers, foreigners, because what Peter's audience was experiencing is not something that is unique to them only. Christians have been, for decades, centuries, they've been exiles. They've been exiles. The foreignness of Christians always increases as a secular society accepts values and legalizes principles that are inconsistent with the gospel. And so we're going to mine this book for wisdom as we seek to navigate this. Now, last week, the first section, verses 3 through 12, uh, Peter gives one indicative after another. Now, you grammarians already know where this is going, but one indicative after another. That is, one statement after another. There are no commands in verses 3 through 12. No imperatives. Just one indicative after another. And he goes on. He pontificates. He gets long-winded. He's, he's on a soapbox. And he's, what he's doing, he's listing off the litany of blessings that God has given you through Christ. One after another, after another, after another. Now, this is important because the shape of the gospel is indicative imperative. The shape of the gospel is indicative imperative. You're saved through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all these blessings come to you, not because you've done anything. Therefore, since all these blessings come to you, live your life in complete and total devotion to Jesus Christ. If we flip the order, live your life in complete and total devotion to Christ, and you will be saved, we end up with the stench of religion and self-righteousness. Getting the order right is critical to keeping the uniqueness of the gospel. Now, the section we're looking at today in verse 13, it starts with therefore. <laughs> that is because all of verses 3 through 12 are true. 
Because God has caused us to be born again into a living hope, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Because all this is true, Peter says, we've got to respond to that. Peter says, I've got some marching orders for you. So when we rightly understand grace, it fuels a response. When we rightly understand grace, it, it demands a response. When we, when we understand the new birth correctly, it changes who we are and how we live. The shape of the gospel is indicative, imperative. Let me illustrate that before we dive into this. Just imagine for a moment you've got very wealthy friends. They own a, a massive estate. And so in my dream world, I think of a private golf course in the backyard. <laughs> Um, I think of swimming pools and tennis courts. I think of 90-inch flat-screen TVs uh, in every room in the house. Every room in the house. And, uh, you know, boats and, you know, trinkets and all that stuff. So, so you've got a friend that's like this. And uh, they own the most expensive car on the planet, which I always have to check. It, to, uh, at least of today, it's called the Rolls-Royce Boat Tail. $28 million car. They own the most expensive car on the planet, and they, they come to you and they say, I'm going on vacation. And you're thinking to yourself, why would you need to do that? But anyway, you're going on vacation. They're going on vacation, and, uh, and they've asked you to come in and house sit for them while they're gone. And after bathing this in much prayer, you say yes. <laughs> you say yes. Sure, we'll take care of your place for you. So you start enjoying this paradise and one day you decide to to hop in the Rolls Royce boat tail because this family gave you permission to use all the toys they've got to take it out for a spin and as you're backing it out of the quarter mile long driveway you accidentally hit the gas pedal instead of the brake and you slam it into a tree and you total the thing well imagine insurance is just we haven't thought of that yet okay we haven't thought about insurance yet they get back they see what you've done to the $28 million car, and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's not happening this, in this life. I'm not going to get to $28 million in the 75 years that God gives to me. They look at it and say, that's a, that's a $28 million vehicle. And uh, they think about it some more and say, you know what? Don't worry about it. We'll take care, we'll take care of every penny. Every penny. That's, uh, that's being forgiven a pretty substantial debt. Wouldn't you say? That's, that's called Mercy. That's called grace. Question, how would you respond? How would you respond? Let's change it up a little bit. Let's, let's imagine this took place in a very bizarre country where the laws on the books for totaling a Rolls-Royce boat tail is the death penalty. Okay? Now you know what you're facing. Not a monetary debt, but your life. Owner gets back. Looks at you, says, you and I both know what this means. And the owner says, you know what? I'll die in your place. I'll take the hit for you. I'll pay the debt of your life for you. How would you respond to that? I can tell you one way you're not going to respond. You're not simply going to shake this person's hand and then be on your way. Now, that event will become the epicenter of your existence. It won't be possible for you to go a single day of your life 
without thinking about it. It will fuel your life's energy and direction from that moment forward. So what Peter is doing is saying, I'm going to tell you what your life's direction is supposed to be in light of the debt Jesus has paid for us. What does a radical reorientation of your life around Jesus look like? This is what Peter's going to do in this section. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, since all of these amazing blessings are true, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what does a radical reorientation of your life around Jesus and what he's done for you, the debt he's paid for you, the hope he's offered you. What does that look like? A radical reorientation of your life around Jesus. It's the question we're asking. Peter offers us four aspects to it. We hope in the right direction. We conform to the right image. We thrive in the right place. And we foster the right appetite. We hope in the right direction, we conform to the right image, we thrive in the right place, we foster the right appetite. First, we hope in the right direction. In the first section, it was all about hope. It was a noun in the first section. In this section, it's a verb. Verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's out in the future. Set your hope in the future. The first marching order that Peter gives us exiles is to hope in the right direction. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, at the parousia, when Jesus comes back. Grace, not wrath, is what you will get when Jesus comes again. So once again, here's what Peter's doing. He's, he's attempting to lift his readers' chins from their feet to the horizon. He's saying, listen, don't let your present circumstances dominate your thinking. Look to the future. 
Look to the future. Now, how does one do that? Peter actually answers the question. He says, by preparing your minds for action, literally, this says, girding up the loins of your mind, which isn't exactly where I think my loins are, but nonetheless, there it is. Girding up the loins of your mind. Now, this is an idiom. In the first century world, you wore long flowing robes and garments. So what are you going to do if you challenge your neighbor to a sprint? Why you would do that, I'm not sure, but... What would you do if you're going to be engaged in some physical activity? You take your rope, you kind of twist it up into a rope, then you tuck it into your belt, right? This is, this is the idiom, girding up the loins of your mind. You gird up the, the garments, you roll it up, get it in your belt, get it out of your way. Modern day equivalent, maybe rolling up your sleeves, get to work. So setting your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed is not idle wishfulness or unfounded optimism. This requires mental resolve. Gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, Peter's saying, you're not going to naturally drift into setting your hope on receiving God's approval at the return of Christ. You don't naturally drift in that direction. Hope will not become a reality in your life without disciplined thinking. But girding up the loins of your mind to set your hope on future grace isn't simply rugged self-determination either. This is not going to work by you just saying, I will hope harder. I will hope harder. I will hope harder. That doesn't work. Hope is determined by the object of your hope. In this case, the object of our hope is the confident expectation of receiving God's approval, not wrath, at the return of Jesus. So in this sense, then, hope is a byproduct of some other activity, some other truth, some other reality. Think about a child's birthday party. She's turning six. And all she can think about are the friends who are coming over, the games that will be played, the cake they'll eat, and of course, the gifts she'll receive. I've seen this in action. It's a thing to behold. In the days leading up to the big day, she bounds around the house with hope in every skip and jump. Not because she's determined to be hopeful, but because she's so enthralled with the splendor of her big day to come, she can't help but be filled with hope. If she never gave her party a single second of her attention, her countenance would be very different. It's precisely because her imagination is consumed with the party to come, she has hope in the present. Question, what are the GPS coordinates of your hope? Are they in what happens this afternoon? Next week? Next month? Next year? Uh, are the GPS coordinates of your hope in getting married? Having kids? Landing a dream job? Are the GPS coordinates of your hope in all the ideal circumstances for this life that your imagination can dream up? If so, your hope is at your feet. And your chin needs to be raised to the horizon. I mean, to be blunt about this, much of our misery is self-inflicted because the GPS coordinates of our hope are located at our feet rather than out on the, our horizon. Our joy or misery are extensions of where we've placed our hope. 
And if the things we've placed our hope in are threatened or diminished or taken away, we become vulnerable to bitterness and despair. What are the GPS coordinates of your hope? Where you place your hope has a profound impact on how you experience your present. Put your hope in the right direction. Second, conform to the right image. The next command, the next marching order is be holy. Verse 15, be holy like the Lord your God is holy. Peter uses this language as obedient children. Father-child obedience is the image to keep in mind here. Remember, Christians are born again as God's children. So one could use the modern colloquialism like father, like son to describe this marching order. Just as God is holy, so we are to be holy. Be the spitting image of your heavenly father. Conform to his image. Now that all sounds nice, but what does it mean to be holy? Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's go to the scene in Revelation where the angels are gathered around the throne and they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, some have contended that the word holy simply means separate. But if that's the case, then the cry separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty kind of leaves something to be desired. Others have contended that holy simply means moral. But if that's the case, the cry moral, moral, moral is the Lord God Almighty also kind of falls flat. Others have said, and I think rightly so, holy is almost an adjective for God. It emphasizes the sheer godness of God. Well, in that sense, then only God is holy. He's different from all other beings. God in all his being and all his godness establishes the lines such that doing what he forbids or failing to do what he commands is sin. And when we are bound up with God, when we're reserved for God, connected to all that brings honor and praise to God, in line with, with all that he is in his character, we are rightly said to be holy. This is what God's vision for his people, Israel, was. And why so much detail is reserved for unpacking what it looked like for them to be holy. So let's get down to that street level. What did holiness look like for the people of Israel? Almost every dimension of life was constrained. What you wore, what you ate, almost every public function. If you have a baby, for example, then there were certain sacrifices that needed to be offered. There are certain clothes you must wear and not wear. And if you did, there were certain ways of becoming clean. If you ate what was forbidden, and there were certain procedures to go through in order to become clean. If you found a mold spot in your house, you would go to the priest. The priest would come over and examine your house. And then make a decision as to whether or not the house needed to be destroyed. And if so, then there were other sacrifices to be offered. If it was not to be destroyed, then there were other steps to be taken, more sacrifices to be made. It was an entire system that constrained every aspect of life. You could not go through a single day if you were a devout Jew without thinking about whether what you were doing was part of what the Lord prohibited. And if so, what you needed to become clean again. You were getting dirty or you were getting clean. It was an astonishing system. Socially all-embracing. It was not a bit of religion tacked on the Lord's day. It was an all-embracing system. That's the point. 
That's the point. This is God's way of teaching holiness. Holiness is not something tacked on at the end of your day or on Sundays. Holiness is an all-embracing system. It's an all-embracing way of life. Have you responded to the debt you've been forgiven with a godness about your life? Is there a godness in how you spend your money? Is there a godness to what you think about during your free time? Is there a godness to your use of language? Now, what does the marching order of be holy have to do with living the Christian life as an exile, a foreigner, a stranger? Why would Peter emphasize the importance of this? When unjustly treated, it's very easy for our flesh to lash out. I can do that with the best of them. We're every bit as prone to vengeance and retaliation as anybody else. A little later in the letter, Peter's going to remind us that Jesus did not repay evil with evil. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. One of the most difficult things, I think, for Christians to do is remain holy while suffering unjustly. We live in a culture today that gives victims carte blanche license to respond to injustice pretty much any way they please. That's not the Jesus way of responding to injustice. Being a victim doesn't give us a license to say or do whatever we want. Victims can still sin. So even when in suffering intense injustice, Christian, you're not permitted to throw the Bible's holiness code out the door. To put a point of emphasis on this, in the context of giving this exhortation, Peter reminds us that our Heavenly Father is our judge. And he will judge you and me according to what we have done. Now, there's a second reason I think Peter's giving this particular marching order to these exiled Christians. Remember the Philippian jailer we looked at a couple weeks ago? Watching how Paul and Silas handled abuse and suffering changed this guy. He was a callous, coarse, military guy. He treated all the prisoners the same way. But he saw in Paul and Silas a response he'd never seen before. They're singing hymns to God. They're praying even while they're enduring the beatings and the torture. That was confounding to this guy. So consider this. What if... Holiness isn't an obligatory next step in the Christian life. What if holiness is an evangelistic strategy? In the Gospels, nobody ever had a moderate reaction to Jesus. They were either infuriated by him so much they wanted to kill him, or they became so smitten with him they wanted to follow him. Look up here. The same ought to be true of us, the church. We are the body of Christ, which means we're the presence of Christ in the world. We're the image of Christ to the world. If we are like Christ, then we will generate the same types of responses. People will either be infuriated so much by the Christ they see in us, they'll want to kill us, or they'll become so smitten with the Christ they see in us, they'll want to become part of us. 
Holiness is an evangelistic strategy. Here's the question I think we should, we should think about. <laughs> Do we give people the impression the most marvelous thing in the world is to be a Christian? Do we give that impression to people? The most marvelous thing in the world is to be a Christian. We conform to the right image. Third, we thrive in the right place. The basic gist of verses 23 through 2-1 is, since you're born again... Love one another earnestly. Since you're born again, love one another earnestly. Now, a couple of implications. First, only those who are born again are capable of loving one another earnestly. In other words, the new birth is a precondition of loving one another from a pure heart. This is why appeals to the general population to just get along won't ever work. In order for the world to be purged of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, the world needs the new birth. Second, since the church is made up of people who have been born again, it is meant to be an alternative society, a Christian colony, a taste of heaven, a community of people who have rid themselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. The new birth produces new spiritual genes. Think about it that way. New spiritual genes, which, which aren't prone to certain relational cancers. The new birth produces new spiritual genes which endow us with the ability to cultivate virtues, kingdom virtues, and resist those that aren't kingdom virtues. There are are some people who are born athletes and others who aren't. For those born without athletic genes, for the most part, it's not really going to matter how much time and energy you put in to becoming a top-of-the-line athlete. You're just not going to be able to match those who have been born with genes you don't have. I didn't believe that when I was in junior high. (laughs) I do now. (laughs) And when those with athletic genes also put the work in, (laughs) they become the ones you're watching on TV. The new birth gives us godlike genes, which endow us with innate potential to cultivate godlike community. So when a community of people who have been born again rid themselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander and love one another earnestly, it's a gospel community wherein people are given a taste of heaven. This sort of exhortation is so common in the New Testament, it's the reason it landed on our list of values. ABC is meant to be a Christian colony, an alternative society wherein people are given a taste of heaven. Now, why would Peter include that in a list of imperatives to exiled Christians, sojourners, foreigners, strangers? Why would he include that? We're going to see scattered throughout the letter Peter's passion to see the church be home away from home. In a context context where acceptance with society is rapidly waning. Peter is passionate to see the church be a refuge, a refuge for the weary, a place of healing for the wounded. Peter is saying, look, your brothers and sisters are beat up enough out there. Don't let that happen here. This community of Christ followers needs to be a breath of fresh air, a place of healing. Istanbul's Hagia Sophia stands as one of antiquity's most intriguing structures. Um, it's remarkable, in, in AD 532, Emperor Justinian opened it as the world's largest 
Cathedral, 532. It's a title it would hold for a thousand years. But that's not what, I think what makes it more remarkable is the Hagia Sophia, um, since that time, has been a self-healing church. It was originally fashioned from a hardy cement taken from an island in the Mediterranean. And the mortar in its walls has never fully set. Even a millennium and a half later. When earthquakes strike, as they often do in Istanbul, and cracks and fissures open up in the structure, they remain only until the next downpour. Then water seeping through these cracks sets the ancient cement, sealing the mortar tight. It's a far more effective repair regimen than any engineer could devise. And it provokes my imagination, a self-healing church. A self-healing church. Peter's writing to Christians fractured by external quakes. Alienation, marginalization. What if Alliance Bible Church was a self-healing church where the way in which we treat and interact with each other actually serves the purpose of healing the fissures that open up as we live the exilic life? Our church community ought to be an environment in which you heal and thrive. Last, foster the right appetite. Final marching order, crave pure spiritual milk. So the the marching order is to have a baby-like eagerness for spiritual nourishment. Nursing moms will get this very quickly. When my kids were at the nursing age and hungry, they became animal-like in devouring mom's milk. I don't know any other way to describe it. Animal-like. And this is the image Peter's using to describe what ought to be our baby-like eagerness for spiritual nourishment. But what precisely is the milk we're supposed to crave? What is this pure spiritual milk? Well, in the original language, it was related to word, the word word. And since Peter's been discussing the word of God in the verses leading up to this, many see this as no more than a reference to the word of God. Crave the word of God like a newborn craves her mother's milk. I think that's part of what Peter's including in this marching order. Crave the word of God like a newborn craves her mother's milk. But Peter also says, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation. And this comes on the heels of this exhortation to rid ourselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. So there's this piling up of metaphors. The new birth, infants, milk, growing up. So step away from the tree, look at the forest for a minute. The marching order is a call to grow up into more of who you already are. As being born again. Grow up into more of who you already are as a new creation, as a son or daughter of the king. Have an animal-like pursuit of spiritual maturation. Jonathan Edwards has been helpful to me in understanding this. Um, Not everybody is... uh, musically inclined or in, finds it interesting, but just imagine, use your imagination for a moment, you're learning a song you've never heard before. Never heard before. Maybe you're part of a choir. It's a complicated piece. Never heard it before, complicated piece, long piece. 
Okay, well, what do you do? How do you go about learning it? Some of you are note readers, and you'll kind of work your way through it day after day, week after week. You might sit down at the piano and kind of pluck out the notes. If you're not a note reader, you'll have someone read it for you or, or sing it to you. There, there's actually a great distance that has to be traveled from seeing the piece of music on paper to performing it for an audience. And the longer the piece, the more difficult the piece, the longer that journey is. This is not something you're going to bang out in an afternoon. This is going to take weeks to learn. Well, Edwards uses that image to get us to see the continuity between the Christian life in this world and our life to come in the new heavens and the new earth. The song we sing in the new heavens and the new earth is not different than the one we're learning today. The one we're learning today is the one we'll sing for eternity. It's the one we'll sing for eternity. So in a sense, the question is this. As you think about life in the new heavens and the new earth, don't think that, well, I will just naturally adapt to how that life is going to work. No. You're practicing that life now. You're practicing that life now. And Peter is saying, have an animal-like passion to do that. So what does a radical reorientation of your life around Jesus and what he's done for you look like? You hope in the right direction. Grace, not wrath, is what you'll receive when Jesus comes again. You hope in the right direction. You conform to the right image. Is there a godness about your life? You thrive in the right place. Do you give people a taste of heaven when they're around you? And you foster the right appetite. Do you have an animal-like passion for spiritual maturation? Now listen, as we close, I want to draw your attention to the largest section of text than the one that I read for you. It's verses 18 to 21. More ink is spilled over this one topic than any other topic in this section. The theme is redemption. Redemption through Christ. Everything before it rushes into it. Everything after it is an outflow from it. And it further explains why you are to have a radical reorientation of your life around Jesus and what he's done. The theme of redemption. That's a word we use in Christian circles all the time, but sometimes we don't realize just the richness of this imagery and what this is saying. In the ancient world, redemption language was common, most frequently being employed in reference to slaves. In the ancient world, you might become a slave for a number of different reasons. Uh, You might become a slave as a result of losing a war. You might become a slave uh, because marauding parties attacked your territory and captured you and your family. But sometimes in the ancient world, you would become a slave because of economic circumstances. There were no bankruptcy laws to protect you. No chapter 11, no chapter 13. So suppose you borrow some money to start a business and you lose your shirt in an economic downturn. What do you do? You sell yourself and maybe your whole family into slavery. There's nothing else you can do. 
So many people became slaves in the ancient world as a result of bankruptcy. Okay, so imagine you're, you're one of those. You've got a well-to-do relative 25 miles away who hears that you've sold yourself as a slave. And not only is this relative well-to-do, but he's a decent fellow, so he decides to buy you back. He redeems you. How does he do that? He travels a day's journey to where you have become a slave, and he makes an arrangement with your owner. The way it normally worked was your relative, the redeemer, would pay the price money for the slave, for you, to a pagan temple, plus a small cut for the temple priests. And then the temple paid the price money to the owner of the slave. And the slave was then transferred to the ownership of this temple's God. Thus, the slave was redeemed from the slavery to the slave owner in order to become a slave to the God. Of course, if you're a slave to a pagan God, it basically means that you're free and you can do anything you want. It was part of legal fiction in order to say the person does not lose his slave status, but nevertheless is freed from slavery in the human sphere because the price has been paid. You have now been redeemed. This is the language that Peter picks up. Language that says Christians have been redeemed from your previous life, your previous way of living, your previous master to now become a slave of Christ. The imagery of redemption helps us understand why our response ought to be a radical reorientation around Jesus. Here's why. As slaves, we cannot buy our freedom. As slaves, we cannot buy our freedom. If you could, you wouldn't be a slave. You cannot buy your freedom. You cannot redeem yourself. God has purchased you, not with money, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Think about the price paid. What does it say about how God sees you? This was not pocket change to make you his son or daughter. It was the blood of his only son, Jesus. You've been redeemed so you can put your hope in the right direction. You've been redeemed so you can be holy as God is holy. You've been redeemed so you can love one another from a pure heart. You've been redeemed so you can passionately pursue spiritual maturity. You have a new master now. And this master is loving, merciful, faithful. And he's working all things out for your good and glory and God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us that this radical reorientation of our lives around your son is not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of just writing a new priority list. It's a matter of us seeing the lengths you've gone to to redeem us, to purchase us, to make us part of your family. And Lord, it was not pocket change. The price was exorbitant. 
but you paid it through the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would see the enormity of this gift, the enormity of this gift, that you would give us a picture of the new life you've redeemed us into. Oh God, make us bear your image. We worship you now for it and pray even in our closing moments now, God, that you would give us a fresh impression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.